My name is Ashley Sebula, and welcome to the Through Every Season podcast, where we discuss what it's like to be a Christian woman in modern day society. We will dive into the truth, trials, and tribulations that come with having a faith. You're never alone here, and we will help you walk through every season. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Through Every Season podcast. Two episodes this month. We have two episodes for the month of September, and this is the very first episode of this month. I really wanted to celebrate National Recovery Month on the podcast. And if you don't know what National Recovery Month is, it celebrates and honors those who have battled the disease of addiction and those who have gone through their recovery journey for the month of September. And for those of you who don't know me in real life or you don't follow my um, personal accounts on social media, I actually work in addiction and recovery. I specifically work with pregnant and postpartum women. Celebrating recovery is a passion of mine, and I wanted to be really intentional of including Megan's story during the month of September or during National Recovery Month. So our guest this month. Our guest is Megan Ale. Megan Ale is actually somebody I know in real life. She's one of my friends. We met in our early 20s during our college years, and we'll dive into that in the episode, of course, how we know each other. But Megan Ale is somebody in her late 20s. She is born and raised in Indiana. She still resides in Indiana in the Lafayette, Indiana area. She is a social worker who works with families and children. She's happily married. She's a dog mom. She has a great, wonderful, and beautiful family. And she is just a ray of sunshine. And even as she talks about some of the darkest moments of her life, of her life, you can just feel this warmth about her. And I'm really glad that you are able to meet her on the podcast today. So for the podcast today, our topics are going to be about her life. We're going to talk about her faith. We're going to talk about addiction. We're going to talk about recovery. And we're also going to talk about Ellie's Candle Co., which is her small business. So we're going to dive right in. Well, hello, Megan. Thank you hello. for coming on yes, through every <laughs> season podcast. As I said in the introduction, we have Megan Ale on for today's episode in honor of National Recovery Month. So we are going to have her on and then kind of talk about her recovery story as well as her small business. So Megan, how does it feel to be on the Through Every Season podcast? I am more than excited. I think that this will really help me through my recovery, actually, because, you know, I talk to my family about it. I go to a psychiatrist, like, but to be able to share like what I know and what I've been through with other people is going to be really rewarding. So, yes, I'm, I'm so excited because, and I, and I've talked about this in the introduction, but I haven't said it before on the podcast, but people who know me um, in real life or on social media know that I work in addiction and recovery. Mm-hmm. I specifically work with 
work with moms or like during pregnancy, but recovery is, is a passion of mine. Celebrating women is a passion of mine. Mm-hmm. So just having you on this podcast just really means a lot. And I'm really excited for people to hear your story. I'm excited as well. I, I'm i also kind of nervous, but that's okay. Because <laughs> exactly. like I said, I've never okay. spoke about it on like a big platform. So <laughs> I just, I hope that somebody learns something from me. That's all. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure people will. No need to be nervous. It's just like us just chatting, chatting away. And it's a safe place here on, on the podcast. So I hope that you feel safe and um, in a space where you are comfortable to share. But we will start out because every single podcast, we start out with a drink of the day. And you have a drink of the day today in a very pretty cup. So I'm going to have you talk about your drink of the day and then your fancy cup. (laughs) So this morning, I found out that my Nespresso machine is broken. I couldn't make coffee out of it. But luckily, we have another like traditional coffee maker. So today I made a blueberry cobbler or warm coffee with caramel stuff in it, like caramel drizzle. So good. And then my cup, it has sunflowers, rainbows, hearts all over it. Um, I went to a festival with my mom. She just moved to Frankfurt with my sister. And she picked it up and was like, oh, I want that so bad. And I was like, okay, but I want it too. And she said, you can have it. So it's one of the most beautiful cups I've ever seen. And I love sunflowers, so. It's so cute. I really like, I like that cup and I like that tumbler and blueberry cobbler sounds really, really good, but I'm very sad to hear you're an espresso broke. And that makes me a little bit nervous because I'm also an espresso girly. So I'm hoping mine doesn't break. <laughs> I think mine has an issue because we have hard water. So I use the water out of my machine, but still some like radicals get through that. And I think there's something wrong that way. I just think I have to clean it out. So yeah, S- similar stuff happens with um, the Keurig. Mm-hmm. My husband did a really good job cleaning out our old one. And that's why it lasted so long. I think he still has it at his office at work. But if you like run vinegar through it until it's clean, I guess it, it works really good. So you could try that with vinegar because apparently that just like cleans everything. Yes, I will. Well, awesome. Well, I'm sorry your Nespresso broke. Mine is still up and running. So I do have a Nespresso coffee today. I have, um, I forget what the coffee pot is called. It's like a Bianco something. It's just an iced coffee. I put it over ice because I'm out of my pods that are like specifically for like iced coffee or iced espressos. And then I frothed um, some pumpkin spice creamer because I have transitioned into my fall girl ego. So that's what I have. I was going to make, I found a recipe for um, pumpkin cream, like the, the cold foam that Starbucks uses, but it's like for at home, but I didn't have time this morning to make it, but I do plan on making it and then using it um, throughout this week. So hopefully, hopefully it's good, but I found it on, actually I saw it two places. I saw it on TikTok and then I saw it on Instagram. So hopefully it's good. <laughs> I've seen that too on Facebook. And I think your coffee pot is called Bianco Dopio. Yes, That's what I, I use that all the time. <laughs> 
Yes, that is the one that I have. And I just ordered a whole bunch of pods. They are expensive. I will say that, but they're going to be here hopefully tomorrow. So I have all my, all my pods coming because I am, I'm running a little bit, a little bit low. The audience might be wondering how Megan and I know each other. So Megan and I used to work at Cheddar's in Lafayette, Indiana, and that is where we met. We were both hostesses in, oh gosh, I want to say, was it 2018, 2019? Um, When I was working there, I had just started college, so it was more around like 2015. Oh my gosh, I am so off. That's right. I'm like 2018, 2019, not realizing that that's like several years ago. COVID, the COVID years really, really screwed with me, but that that's correct. In like 2015, yeah, probably 2015, 2016, because um, if you were a freshman at Purdue, I would have had to been probably a junior. Yes, we are both hostesses at Cheddar's. So if you are from the Lafayette, Indiana area, or you went to Purdue, you're probably familiar with Cheddar's. So Megan and I started there pretty much maybe like a couple months after it opened. Does that sound about right? Not like the OG, OG hostesses, but we were pretty darn, pretty darn close. And yeah, that's how we met when we worked at the good old Cheddar's and your sister worked there too. Yeah. My sister was the administration assistant or administration, you know what I mean? But she's the one that got me the job and you had started a little bit before me. So you were able to train me. So that was fun too. (laughs) The person who got me the job at Cheddar's, I used to work with at Harvey's in high school was Ricky. And she was, she was one of the managers at the time. She doesn't work there anymore, but um, she was the one that got me the job at Cheddar's. So yeah, I can't say I go to Cheddar's all the time because there's not really a lot like in Columbus, Ohio, maybe in other parts of Ohio, but there's, there's not a lot around, around here. After I graduated from college, I obviously stopped working at, at Cheddar's. I had moved, um, up to Indianapolis, like on the North side and in the Castleton area. And I lived there slash worked there for a year. And I know you changed schools. So you went to, was it IU Kokomo? It was, yes. I met my husband and that's where he went. And I moved there too. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So you lived in Westfield, which was not far. It wasn't far from, mm-hmm. from Castleton. And, um, we reconnected why we were both in Indianapolis because I had posted, I had a fitness Instagram at the time. I don't really have one anymore, but I had posted about how I wanted to do the whole 30. Cause I had a lot of stomach issues for like five years. I, I actually had small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So t- doing the whole 30 really didn't help that, you know, long story short, but I decided I wanted to do the whole 30 which is essentially like um, an elimination diet for like 30 days. If you don't know what the Whole30 is, Google it and you'll learn all about it. But I posted about it and Megan had messaged me and was like, hey, I want to do that too. So we had taken a day, I think we like May 1st or May 2nd. I can't remember because May had 31 days. So I think we started on the 2nd. So like the day before, I remember like you came to my gym, I went to Lifetime at the time and we worked out together and then we went to Trader Joe's and like got all of our stuff and like, I don't, that was a lot of fun. It was so much fun. It was so, so, so much fun. 
it was a lot of fun but yeah that's how we kind of reconnected and then in June like the very next month I actually ended up moving to Columbus Ohio and so and that and that was actually that was actually in 2018 so I know that that time period's correct but yeah that's how Megan and I know each other is from Cheddar's in college and then kind of reconnecting when we both um lived in Indianapolis so yeah that's how we know each other and that was my first time I ever had been to Trader Joe's so that was even better <laughs> how special I love Trader Joe's when I lived in Castles and I lived yeah five minutes I lived five minutes from that Trader Joe's and now I live like 40 minutes I went there actually yesterday but I only go like maybe like four times a year now so Kind of sad. And I know you aren't really near Trader Joe's now because you live in the Monticello area, right? Um, I live back in Lafayette. <sighs> so close. <laughs> yeah, close. But you had lived in Monticello for a little bit, right? That's where I grew up. There we go. <laughs> like, there we go. Monticello is pretty from... close to Lafayette. But yeah, no Trader, <laughs> Trader Joe's in Lafayette yet. They need to need to get on that. Step their game up, I swear, because I need it. I us kind of talking about our little like blast from the past kind of is a perfect segue into talking about, you know, just your life and like what led up to your recoveries before we kind of get into addiction, before we get into recovery, we're going to kind of go back to the beginning because everybody who has a recovery story has a story before they were in their recovery that goes all the way back to their childhood. So we're just going to go back to the beginning, if you will. And I know we kind of already talked about it, but where are you from? So when I was the youngest, I was, um, I was born in Lafayette, actually. And then my parents lived in Brookston, Indiana. So I lived there. I went to kindergarten there and then we moved to Monticello. So I grew up there. Um, went to middle school, or, yeah, elementary school, middle school, high school, and then I've moved a bunch of other places. So, yeah, Monticello is like my home. What was your childhood like? So I was very, very fortunate to have a wonderful childhood. Um, the only issue was is we struggled a lot with money, but you would have never known that because my parents were very loving, very caring very inspiring. Um, I played so many sports. My dad would save his money just so me and my siblings could play sports. Um, and he worked a lot, but my mom didn't ever work. So she was a stay-at-home mom. There's five of us. So, I mean, of course she was able to stay home, but I was just very lucky to not experience what other people had experienced in their childhoods. You know, I felt like I had a decent normal um childhood but you have a big family uh you have yeah a lot of siblings and you guys always seem really really close-knit so that's good that you have a lot of support from your family yeah it was it was really great my sister and I of course being close in age we didn't really get along when we were kids my brother Tristan and I were the closest and he didn't like anyone ever so <laughs> I don't know. And then Noah, he is, he is the light of my life. He actually lives with me now. So he's my bestie and Ashley and I get along really well too. Um, actually my sister, she's about to announce by the time this podcast comes out, she's pregnant. 
That's so finally. Oh my gosh. Finally, she's pregnant and she's been trying for a very long time and she met the right guy and she's pregnant. So I'm helping her with that. And that's awesome. My family's large, very large now, especially. Yes. Yeah. With all the addition of like boyfriends and girlfriends and like, like husbands. Yeah. It, your, your family only grows, but no, that that's awesome. Congratulations to her. Also, you know, a good point to make too about um, struggling with money, oh, recession kids, because <laughs> we were right in that age group where a lot of families struggled with money, especially like around the recession, which would have been a good portion um, of our childhood or our early teen years. But that's really good that, you know, your parents provided you guys with the best childhood possible, you know, despite any adversities. So I really enjoyed being with my family. And um, even though, like I said, we were struggling with money, my parents, they didn't care. They were just like, well, we'll make it no matter what. And that's something that I carry with me. Is there anyone in your family or maybe like close family friends that struggled with the disease of addiction? My mom, actually, um, we're going to fast forward a little bit in my life, but my dad passed away in 2016. Um, he had been sick for quite a few years, probably since like 20, 2008 is when he had his first heart attack. So my mom was struggling as well. And hers was mostly mentally because of losing my, going to lose my dad. We knew it was coming. So she started abusing her pain pills. Um, she was abusing alcohol and she just was not the greatest mom. And luckily that was towards like my teen years, my late teen years. So I was able to kind of just ignore it almost and just be like, it's just mom, whatever. <clears throat> She'll get over it. But that was the first time I had ever been um, exposed to addiction. Of course, now that I'm older, um, I have family and friends that I never knew were struggling. And now that I'm an adult, they're like, yeah, I was an alcoholic when I was little or little, a teenager or late young adult. But yeah, it's been, it's been a crazy one. So I imagine that that was really hard to see your mom go through that and then also simultaneously lose your dad and process your own emotions too I can only imagine like how like dark of a period that was for your family it was a very very deep dark part of my life I forgot to mention too that both my parents smoked cigarettes like a chimney so um <laughs> that was something else that I would I mean I'm sure everybody does but consider that an addiction that was another thing that I was used to you know the house everything smelling like smoke walking out everybody's like, oh, you smell like a cigarette. And you're like, okay, I understand. You don't got to tell me. <laughs> so um, did your family go to church growing up or what was your introduction into Christianity or having like a relationship with God or having a faith? So my family didn't go to church together. Um, actually, I was the only one that attended church regularly because the first time I was introduced to it was my grandparents both were really 
into being Christians and they loved God and they had Bibles everywhere. And that was where it started. And I loved it. It was so beautiful to me. And so when we moved to Monticello, I was about five years old and my church that I went to, it was in Monticello. They uh, had a church bus that would drive around and pick up kids that couldn't go to youth group alone. Like my parents couldn't drive me, my dad worked or other kids, their parents didn't have cars or whatever it may be. So I had a really good friend. She was like two or three years older than me and her mom and dad let her go on the bus. So she asked my parents if I could go on the bus. So I got on the bus and we went to church and I never looked back. It was something that I did uh, every Wednesday, every Sunday. And I actually was taking voice lessons there so I could sing in the church choir because I just loved that. Um, God really had my back and he still does, but he, he gave me a lot of opportunity within the church. I was, I would travel to like Cleveland, Ohio for, um, for competitions because the churches, they would come together and everybody would sing their parts and they would have little shows. And one time we even did like a video. So that was like where we all dressed up in costumes and we had chains and, you know, black makeup and we would go on stage and we would perform for everyone showing them like you could be broken from the chains of the devil. You could be released by God. And that was, don't go into those things was so eye-opening for me. And it gets me excited talking about it because those were the days, you know what I mean? Like those were the days where I had no worries. God was just, he was everything. And he's still a really big part of my life today. So that's really great to hear. And I love that your church had like a bus. Like it reminds me of like the magic school bus. I don't know if you remember that show and all the kids get on, <laughs> like it's all fun and like <laughs> they go on adventures. So that's kind of like what I imagined as you were talking. Yes, that's exactly what it felt like. <laughs> that is what it felt like 100% because when I got on that bus, there were no worries. I didn't have to worry about money. I didn't have to worry about what I smelled like. I didn't have to worry about what my clothes looked like. I got to get on that bus and everyone loved everybody. And that was just something that it did. It was magic. Like I was so blessed that God let that church do that for everybody. Cause that was a way for them to, to spread the word of God, of course. And it was, I'm smiling so hard. because so I was like, I love that part of my life. Oh, no, I'm glad that you had that support, like from a church while you were growing up, because I think it's really important for kids to have that and especially have a, um, like a non-toxic safe church environment too, where like they feel wanted, like they feel heard, like they feel happy. So that's really great that you had that type of church when you were younger. So let's get into the teenage years. What did high school look like for you? Like, were you a good student? What sports or activities were you into? What did that time period look like for you in school? So when I got to high school, um, I was still singing in the church. I was playing softball. When I was younger, that was something else I did was I played travel softball all the time. So when I got to high school, I was not able to go to church as often because the travel ball team I was on played on Sundays. So I had to miss a lot of that church environment that I was used to. 
Um, but yeah, I played travel softball. I played softball in high school. Um, I was on the varsity team as a freshman. Um, I also played volleyball. That was not my favorite, but it was okay. I, li- I liked it. It gave me some sense of team camaraderie, of course. I played basketball, but of course I'm five, I'm five, two. So when you play basketball, um, that's not the greatest. So I kind of quit that my junior year and the, I was only playing softball as a sport, but also as a freshman, I joined like the highest show choir you can be in at my school. Um, we were called the sound waves and I was on that since I was a freshman, um, still doing my voice lessons and everything. And I was also in theater, so I was able to be the lead of a musical called Guys and Dolls. I was Adelaide in that um, show. So my GPA was something that was super important, especially to my parents and myself. And of course, sports teams, if you have a bad GPA, you can't play. So I was also given 21st century scholars to look forward to. Um, my GPA when I graduated was a 3.98. So I was, and this is crazy. My school, the kids in my class were like geniuses because I was only 11th in my class and I had a 3.98. So all the other kids, they had like, you know, 4.12 or cause they took the AP classes and the extra classes and got mm-hmm. perfect grades in those. So yeah, my GPA was really important to me. I loved high school. I loved it. I was, I wouldn't say I'm popular, but I was that kid that loved everyone. I loved sitting next to the kids that nobody else would, would sit next to. I loved <clears throat> being a part of everything in the school. I would try to take every class that I could. I would talk to all the teachers and get to know them. And I, my parents were, I had a job also in high school. So um, in that job, I was able to save up money. And instead of saving it for myself, I would buy my teacher's Christmas gifts every single one of them like I buy like a thing from Dollar Tree and then like a five dollar gift card so like I would do that and then whatever was left over I gave to my parents because I played softball and that took a lot of money so oh my gosh you were you were such a good kid not that you're not not a good woman now but you just sound like like the picture perfect like daughter picture perfect kid and your high school was a smaller high school too wasn't it what was your graduating class how many people if you remember yeah it was around 160 on being a perfect kid I promise that it sounds like it but sometimes I made mistakes like any other teenager does but I have to say again like it was because I had God behind me um in terms of you know exploration when you're when you're a teenager did you explore with like alcohol or anything when you were a teenager I would say yes um my sister was with a really abusive husband which I got her permission to talk about it so um her first husband that she had was very toxic very abusive um he drank all the time he was an alcoholic so luckily my dad and I would go over there together because we would check on her and one time I was 14, I think, was the first time I ever drank. Um, but it was only one beverage. Like, a, if you know those Mike's Hard, like, the bottles or whatever. Um, my sister used to like those. So my dad was like, if you want to try it, try it. But you get one and that's it. So he was, 
he was trying to basically tell me like don't do it he didn't want me to do it but he also wanted me to understand the consequences so um that was the first time I ever drank but as I got into later years of high school there's those parties after prom and there's um homecoming and all those things and I felt very peer pressured I had a boyfriend in high school all four years of high school and he liked to drink with his friends not all the time but enough to where I was exposed to it that was another place where I kind of picked up the habit of doing it like at least once a month and when I graduated high school it kind of mellowed out because I was still underage but I had no money because I was on my own for the first time so I kind of just was like oh that's not important to me so life after high school and kind of entering college where did life take you after you graduated high school after I graduated high school um I of course went to Purdue I was very lucky and blessed to go on a full ride scholarship due to my academics and my sports. So I was so pumped. My dad wanted me to go there so bad. And when I got my exception um, acceptance letter, he about puked because he was so excited. <laughs> um, so I went to Purdue for the first year. I actually roomed with one of my friends from high school. Her name was Catherine, and she was a really great roommate to me. Um, we walked in, we got our room assignment and we walked in and we turns out that it was a suite and we had no clue. So we had our own bathroom and shower. Um, we had room for both beds to where they didn't even have to touch. Um, a walk-in closet. <laughs> we were just like, what is happening here? Why did we get lucky to do that? But college, honestly, at Purdue was really, really hard for me. I came from a small town. Every town I lived in was small. Um, I got there and realized you don't have anybody that you need because you're by yourself. Um, of course, I had Catherine, but she and I would try to go out and go to stupid frat parties and try to meet people. And it just wasn't fun for me. And I didn't do well academically. I think when I moved schools, I had like a 2.7 GPA at Purdue, just because I had a lot of things playing into that. I was upset that I wasn't with my family. I was mad that I had to walk everywhere and I had to miss buses, which was really dumb. I hated that. And I was just lonely and I didn't, of course, I, I wasn't joining a sorority. By the my voice, I'm sure you guys can tell that I am not a girly girl. I don't like anything like that. Having to live with women, oh, that makes me want to, no, I just couldn't do it. So if you're not in a sorority at Purdue either, you don't know a lot of people. So that was rough for me. I was, in t I was a teacher. Like I was going to school to be a teacher. I don't know if anybody else knows this either, is that when you go to become a teacher, Every single teacher that's a woman that goes to Purdue is in a sorority. Of course, there's outliers like myself. But when I would walk into those classes, there would be seven, eight, nine girls that all knew each other in like this little clique. And then me and like one other person would be sitting on the side like, where are we? <laughs> what are we doing here? So I gave up on teaching too. 
and I changed my major to be um, human resources because I wanted, I found out I wanted to become a social worker. Like I found that I wanted to be in that realm to help people. So I started there and I hated that even more because it wasn't what I expected. I should have just went to social work, but I didn't. So yeah, I ended up moving from Lafayette to Logansport because I met my husband. He lived in Logansport. So I met him and he was like, I think that because you're so unhappy, your GPA is not great. You need to move and try something new. And he always was like, I promise I'm not telling you to come here because I want you to be here. I'm telling you that if you hate the big school atmosphere, you'll love IUK. So IU Kokomo was my saving grace. When I graduated from there, I had a 4.2 GPA. I loved the small classes. Again, my friend Hagen went there, so I got to hang out with her quite a bit. My friend Emily went there. Um, it was just a really small world, and I gained a lot of friends from there as well because we were all doing the same thing. Of course, there was one sorority, but it was nothing. You don't live with them. You just camaraderie with them. So IUK was literally my saving grace. I was able to get into the sociology program there. Um, I still have the opportunity to go back there and get my um, master's degree if I want to. I haven't done that yet. Kind of nervous, but maybe we'll dabble into that. But that was just something that I always thank God for. Again, I take it all back to him because my husband is great. He's the best thing that's ever happened to me. And then him giving me the courage to switch schools halfway through sophomore year. I would have never done that on my own and I would have never succeeded or thrived if it wasn't for his support. So, yeah, sometimes a simple change in environment just completely changes everything because a big school isn't for everyone. Of course, I went, obviously, since we both lived in West Lafayette for part of the time, I also went to Purdue and I loved it. And I came from a very, very small town and then went to Purdue and really liked that I didn't know, like I could go somewhere and I didn't know everyone. I liked that aspect, but there were so many people who ended up dropping out or ended up transferring and going to other schools, or maybe they went to a different school right after high school and they had a lot better, better of a time. So that's awesome that you were able to find a school that really worked for you. And of course your husband too. I remember when you guys like got together, cause you were at, you were at Cheddar's and he just seems like the absolute, like sweetest person. You guys are like so adorable. So it's just really good to see you guys like having a great marriage now, you know, years later. And then I know you and your husband, you guys have been together for eight years, which you guys must've gotten together around the same time. And I guess it would make sense going back over the timeline as my husband and I did, because my husband and I have been together for eight years and then married for three years in a, actually a month from today, almost. So when did you guys get married? Um, we got married in 2018. So we're going on, if I can do math, five, yeah, five actually years. July, July 27th was our five-year wedding anniversary. Aww. Oh, that's awesome. And I remember you, and we've kind of talked about a little bit already, 
on the podcast, but I remember you losing your father and I know you guys were both really, really close. Can you tell us a little bit about your father and how he positively impacted your life? Absolutely. My dad was the man. (laughs) He was something that if you knew him, you loved him. No one that I know ever disliked him. Um, He was huge in the community. He was someone that if you said Bob Tannenbaum, everyone knew who you were talking about. He was the best softball coach. He coached me from when I was like seven until I got to high school. He was a lot of other people's coach. I still have people whenever I post about his death or his birthday or Father's Day. I have other people's moms or even grandparents or even the the kid themselves that well they're not an adult now but they would comment on those things and be like your dad was one of the best people I've ever met he was the best coach that I've ever had he gave me confidence in who I am and that alone is just crazy I just when I see those comments I'm like that's what he would have wanted to know be to be known as he was loving he was affectionate like he he would show people he would tell people yeah I love Megan I love my daughter or on the field even he would scream like I love you get the hit you can do it and he was he was just caring and I miss him so much um when he got sick our whole family kind of kind of um drifted apart I'd say especially right after he passed away um my sister took it her own way my little brother took it his own way he was 13 and he's 20 now when my dad passed away so he stayed with my mom of course and he was the one that got to see the grunt of her problem with addiction because he was with her all the time Luckily, I had Rainy, so we we went through it kind of together. Um, he was my backbone, and my brother Tristan, he was at um, ISU, so he was dealing it, dealing with it kind of by himself. The impact that my dad has on me to this day is crazy. I tell myself all the time that I am the woman that I am today because of him because he instilled um a lot of that drive that passion the hard work knowing my worth that is him I know you said you know everybody in your family all coped in different ways what were some ways that you coped with the loss of your father like I said, luckily I was with Rainy, so he um, drove me to do it in a positive way. He helped me right away get a new job there because I had never lived in Logansport and didn't have a job there for a while. So I got a job to kind of help with that downtime that I had. Um, I put a lot of emphasis on my schooling. Um, luckily, didn't really use alcohol as a a coping mechanism. 
I would do things like fitness. I would go to the gym a lot. Um, and I would just cry all the time because there's nothing wrong with that. Um, letting myself feel that. I mean, obviously right now you can tell that it's still fresh. Like no matter how many years pass, no matter the time, the person that you turn into, it's always, always hard. It's fresh and I cry probably, <laughs> I probably cry like five times a week at least thinking about him and doesn't have to be a whole breakdown session, but when I hear a song or I watch a softball game or whatever, sometimes I'll just tear up and that's probably the best way I've coped with it is letting myself feel how I feel rather than pretending I'm so tough. And what would be your best advice to those who have lost a loved one like a father? The best advice I would say is one of the things of kind of the same where let yourself feel your feelings don't pretend something that a lot of times people told me about my dad was my dad wouldn't want to see me cry he wouldn't want you to be sad that he passed away and I'm always like well I'm sure he won't want me to be happy about it either if I'm sad he wants me to he would want me to feel how I feel so that's my number one but then my number two and something that he said since I can remember is the most important play in a game is the next one so take that loss and put it towards something positive because my dad's legacy lives on through me and my siblings so even though that was probably the hardest thing that's ever happened in my life um he would want me to move on and make it a positive experience so the, that's my quote, even it's even on his obituary was the most important play in a game is the next one. So take what you have, take that loss and show people why that person in your life meant so much to you every day. And that's great advice too. And just a great kind of mindset to have about grief and have about loss because grief and loss, it, it, it's awkward. That's like the best word to describe it. And your advice, I know, will will help a lot of people. So thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. It's the one thing that keeps me from going down a dark path and a dark hole. I know that I've the whole reason we're here is to talk about something a little dark, but it was something that still gets me through every day is knowing that piece of advice. Just the most important play is the next one. So getting, getting into it, if you will. So I know you had shared just a glimpse, like a speck, if you will, on social media about your recovery with alcohol use. What did your journey with alcohol look like? It was, you know, I'm okay. I can have drinks with my friends. Yeah, I'm underage, but oh, well, uh, I'm never going to something that every addict says oh that's not gonna happen to me I'll be fine um I I can stop if I want to or so I would just do it recreationally of course just party socially but 
I would say when it got to where it was more often was when I did move to Westfield with my husband. I still was at the time, I was like, I don't need it every day. Like even once a month was enough for me. It wasn't anything where I thought that I had a problem. But as I look back now, I would say that's where those thoughts started of, man, that sounds like so much fun. Let's get something to drink. And all my friends also were the same way. I mean, we're young, we're 20, 21 years old. So that's where I would say I could look back and be like, I should have known some of the warning signs. When it got bad was when I moved to Missouri. I was having hard feelings about being away from my family. Ramey's family actually moved to Missouri a year before we did. So they were already there. They were in a town 45 minutes over. We had their support. It was easy to get to them. Lucky, lucky that they were there. I would say, yeah, Missouri was the time where I realized that it was bad. I had no family there um, and I was trying to find things to cope with that. I went to start working at Cheddar's there and I was just, you know, average host, uh, server, bartender, all that stuff. Started cooking. I met a lot of friends there. Turns out my friends that I did make were really into the party scene. They really liked to drink. Every other day, they were at somebody's house drinking, and I wanted to fit in. I wanted to have those friends. I wanted to have that support that I didn't have anymore. So I would start going after work with them. Of course, Ramey was like, yeah, make your friends. Have fun. It turned into something that is like a nightmare. Um, when I look back and I said, oh, I don't have a problem. I'm good. I'm just hanging out with my friend, having a couple beers or whatever. I look back and I'm like, sorry, but damn, like, how did you not see how big of a problem it was? Because I was, I was drinking every night, pretty much. I was hanging out with my friends. I started lying to Ramey, hiding it from him. I would go out and I would um, tell him that I was at a friend's house staying the night or something. And he's like, Megan, you were literally 22 years old. Why are you staying the night with adults? Like, it's fun to have sleepovers, but these people were pretty much random. But I wanted to drink that bad that I would do that. Just the worst of the worst. It came down to where I was drinking every day, even with or without friends. When I knew that I had a problem, this was the time. It was a really cold December night, and me and my friends went to a bar that was really close to my house. I had been so drunk, but I wanted to drive home. And all my friends were like, oh, well, like you're an adult. It's your choice. I'm not going to stop you, even though that's not if your friends say that to you, they're not your friends, everybody. I want you to know that. Um, I got in my car and I started driving. I was following my friend Hadley home. I ran into a median, um, just one of those short ones on the road. And I popped both of my tires on the driver's side at the same time. I had to pull out, you know, and I was obviously freaking out of my mind drunk. So I begged my friends, don't call the police. I don't need police. I will go to jail. So if we could just pull my car over to this edge and then somebody take me home, I'll, my husband's already going to know that I'm drunk. So we can explain it to him in the morning. Thank God I had insurance on my car at that time. So I was able to get the tires replaced. 
but that didn't stop me. That was not the thing that stopped me. Um, I ended up driving drunk pretty much all the time. One time separately, I ran into a pole at a gas station parking lot because I told my friend I had to get gas before I could go home. And again, I was out of my mind drunk. So I pulled in and this yellow pole, I scraped my car against it and I still have the car that I was driving and it has like this indent on it because I ran into that pole. And then one other time um, I was driving drunk and I fell asleep on the side of the road. I couldn't make it home. I would say driving drunk was the worst part of this. And again, I'll say this again, I did not think I had a problem. I do now, I see now that that's where it started to be an addiction. When I moved, we finally got to move back to Lafayette. I convinced Ramey that we need to move because if I don't, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die. Like I will die. I will end up in the ground because I can't control myself. And I think that if I have my friends and family with me, I'll be all right. I can go back to using it as a normal 22 year old adult. And he was like, yeah, you're right. I think we should do that. His parents packed up even with us and they moved to Lafayette too. That was really, really cool. Um, but then I got here and we moved in with five of our friends. So there was seven people that lived in the same house. It was a freaking huge house though. It was like giant. But again, now we're with all other people the same age as us that all want to party as well, all the time. So I started doing that. And I started drinking every day. Um, all my friends, nobody saw that it was a problem because it's like, at least I'm safe. At least I would do it in the house. I wouldn't drive. Nobody, those are good friends. They didn't let me go anywhere. So love that. It became even more of a problem because I was doing it in front of everyone. I didn't care to hide it because it was normal. And that was something that I didn't realize either was even though I was doing it in front of people doesn't mean, didn't mean I didn't have an addiction problem just because people knew didn't mean that I had, didn't have an addiction problem. When I moved to Lafayette and I was drinking and living with those people, I started to get violent. I would punch Rainy in the face. I would throw my friends into to, uh, closet doors and knock the door down on them. I would punch a window and not break it, but broke my hand one time, kind of broke my knuckle or something. Never went to the doctor. So. But that violence was when I first really genuinely realized in that moment that I had a problem. I went to a mental health facility in 2019. Yes, 2019. I went to a mental health facility for a week. I came out and I felt like I was a new human. I thought I was a new woman. I went right back to it. And my birthday was a week after that. And I convinced my family and friends that I would be okay to drink. I wasn't. Because right on that day, I picked it up and I didn't stop again. But after that was when I started hiding it from people. I would hide it in my bedside table. I would hide it in the trunk of my car. I would hide it under the freaking entertainment center in my house. 
I would drink, my drink of choice was beer. But then once I wanted to hide it harder, I bought the 750 mil gross bottles of vodka. I would drink that in two days. Sometimes a day and a half. Morning, noon, night, didn't matter. So that's kind of where I am at the end of knowing my problem. So obviously that impacted your mental health, as you said, it impacted your everyday life. How did it impact your relationship with those who were close to you? I lost everyone at one point. I had done that to my friend. I shoved her into that closet door, went to the help mental health facility, and she didn't talk to me for months. She was my best friend. Her name is Kinsey. And I'm so blessed that over time we have been able to rekindle. So shout out to my friend Kinsey. She'll probably listen to this. Love her. Um, I also have another friend named Kinsey who I also was not really great to. Back then, I lost pretty much everything. Um, Ramey and I talked about divorce a couple times. He was like, if you can't get your stuff together, if you choose a drink over me one more time, then I'm out of here. I'm so blessed that even though I had relapsed a bunch of times, he never left me because he threatened it a lot and I deserved it. Absolutely, I deserved it. But when that happened and he would threaten me, all I would want to do is drink more because I was pissed off. I didn't want him to say that to me. I wanted him to support me rather than just be like, I'm leaving. I'm leaving you if you do that again. So I would do it in revenge, kind of, which was awful of me. And he started to catch on that I would do that. So he started saying like, whatever, I don't care. Go drink, go kill yourself kind of thing. Like not telling me to go, you know what I mean? Just saying like, if that's what you want to do and that's how it ends up, then that's not my problem kind of thing. Just to do a little reverse psychology. That's the only reason he would say stuff like that. Because when he would do that, I would not drink. Because I'm like, oh, he's trying to challenge me that I can't, that I'll go and drink. Well, no, now I won't. That was just that tumultuous relationship that I caused with him. My sister, I apologize for profusely still to this day because she would do anything she could to protect me. If she knew I was drunk, she wouldn't tell anybody. If she knew I was drunk and Remy asked, she would say no. Um, I became functioning there for a while. Um, so that was something that I never thought would happen to me, but here we are. So I would drink before work. I'm a social worker. I have kids in my cars. When I was going through it, the, the depths of hell, I would sometimes choose to drink over going to work because I had my conscience still to where you can't drive with kids in your car, but drinking is more important. So I would not go to work just because of that. So that ruined my relationships for a little bit while I was in my work relationships. My supervisor was not happy with me. Um, who would be, of course, when you're not going to work. So I would do that. That's another relationship issue I had. And just the rest of my family, they didn't even want to be around me. They were like, if she comes around and she tries to make us lie for her, I don't want her around me. So that was, that was awful knowing that I was kind of rejected for a while because I couldn't control myself. And I know it was probably 
felt so awful to lose those important people around you for Ramey, you know, to make those firm boundaries with you and have those expectations for you. The fact that your loved ones didn't or tried not to enable you in your addiction just speaks volumes on the people around you because sometimes putting up boundaries with other people and not enabling those around us saves their lives. You know, even if they're mad at you for a little while, they're mad at you for a year, they maybe maybe you don't even have a relationship for a few years, but if that person's able to get into the recovery, that's the best thing for them is putting those boundaries up. So that way, hopefully that person gets in a space to where they're going to choose to work on themselves. That really, it really does speak volumes about your family and the people that you have around you. Yeah. And I feel, I feel terrible because my sister today still says that she feels like it's her fault because she, she says that she felt like she was enabling me when I keep telling her that all you were trying to do was protect me because all you wanted to do was make sure that when I went home, I was okay, at least in her eyes. She never turned her back on me. No matter how drunk I was, no matter how many times I cried, she has always, 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 always supported me. Um, She was actually one of the people besides Ramey that got me to be in this recovery that I'm in today. So many people have a recovery story that has somebody who supported them through it. And maybe they did do some enabling behaviors, but what I think is important to mention about enabling behaviors is that a vast majority of the time that comes from a place of love. It comes from a place that you truly want the absolute best for that individual. It's not coming from a malice place. So I think whether or not like a person who is a support person in your recovery, whether they are somebody who says like, hey, I'm putting up firm boundaries or they're somebody that maybe does have a little bit of enabling behaviors, it's okay because having a loved one with an addiction is so hard and we shouldn't put all of these like big expectations on people because it's something really difficult to deal with and a lot of people don't know how to navigate but it does sound like you have had and have, of course, some really great people in your life. Yes, I am. I am very blessed to have the people that I do because I went through that with the people that I have today in my recovery. The people that I was going through the deepest, darkest parts of me are still here and still have me as somebody that they love. And if it weren't for the people that I have, I would definitely be, definitely be six feet in the ground because it got to the point where my mental health was the part that was enabling myself because I was like, I hate my life. I hate how I look. I hate how I feel when I'm not drunk because, you know, people always say that you feel like superhuman when, when you're drunk. So um, all that confidence, I was scared when I was in recovery or when I was going to be in recovery, that I would lose that, that I would be a different person and that nobody would like. Turns out that's a lie. Don't believe that because I still have those people that I hurt and they still have my back today. So I know that you kind of talked about that you had a few times where you relapsed or you continued 
to use alcohol. What did entering into recovery look like for you? So the first time that I entered recovery was a couple years ago, probably about, well, about a year and a half ago. My husband caught me drinking at home when I was telling him that I wasn't. Um, he caught, he came home and he's not dumb. Like I always would think he is. Um, he's not stupid. So you can tell when somebody's drunk, obviously, and you can smell it. So one night he came home and he told me again to leave. He was like, I don't want you around me right now. You need to get your ass out of here. I just don't, I don't approve of what you're doing. And he was like, you need to get help. I was like, okay. So I stopped drinking for a couple months. I got my therapist. She was really helpful. Um, if anybody wants a therapist, look into ThriveWorks. They're a great company. That was the first time I got sober. Then I started to hide it again. I drank for the first time after that sober period. I ended up somewhere that I shouldn't have been. Um, during this time, too, I was very promiscuous. I loved Raimi more than anything in the world. And I, I only did it when I was drunk. If in my conscious state of mind, I would never hurt him like that. I would never do anything to hurt him. I was just being that drunk little girl that wants all the attention from every person that they see. After that, it was very much, if you don't, that was the first time we talked about divorce. If I don't stop drinking, then I don't have Raimi. So I got sober again for like probably five months-ish. So a little bit longer. So that was nice. This past February of 2023, I had been with my sister. Well, I hadn't been with her all day. I was drunk. And then I went to my sister's. She told me that she knew that I was drunk and that it was okay. She would help me get home. So she let me follow her into town back in Lafayette. But I asked her to go back out with me to a bar. And she told me, no, you need to go home. And that pissed me off. So I sped past her on the highway on I-65, which is a very busy highway. I sped past her, got onto the exit, and then I went to my friend Kinsey's house. And I sat outside and I called her. I said, will you please come out here? I need to talk to you. I promise I'm not drinking. My sister's mad at me. I don't know what to do. Um, and at this time, she had had everybody over, like all of our other friends over. And I didn't go because I didn't want to drink in front of people. So I said, no, I'm not going because I didn't want people to find out that I'm not sober anymore. So I show up. Obviously, I'm drunk out of my mind again. And they keep telling me, you need to get help. Like, you need help. And I always said, I'm not drinking. I'm not drunk. Yes, I was. So I should have just been honest. But my sister was able to let me follow her home again to my house after that disaster. On the ride back to my house, she had called Rady and told him that I was drunk again. Then I got home and um, he was obviously really mad. He was, I don't even know if there's a better word than mad, furious, outraged. He was just, he told me to pack my shit and go to my mom's house. I said, well, I'm drunk. I'm not driving again tonight. He said, well, you've already been doing it. I was like, I'm not doing that again. Like I'm done. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to drink and drive, blah, blah, blah. He's like, okay, well then go in the morning. 
you need time to figure your shit out. I was like, okay. So I went to my mom's for a couple days. I called my supervisor and asked for some PTO. I felt better about it. I was like, maybe this is the time. Maybe this is where I can turn my life around. Because if I don't, I'm going to be on the streets and not be able to take care of myself. So I came back home. And Ramey, when I walked in the door, said, have you looked at recovery centers? I said, no, not yet. It's a little early for me. I feel uncomfortable. And he was like, no, just do it. Just look up stuff. You can do outpatient, inpatient, anything that you need to get you yourself through this. I was like, okay. So I looked up places and there's a place here in Lafayette called Clean Slate. I don't know if it's anywhere else, but it's called Clean Slate. And they have a Vivitrol program, also called naltrexone, Mm -hmm. which is a long lasting shot that you can get right in your butt cheek. And (laughs) it it, um, releases the chemicals into your body to make it so if you did ever drink again, you wouldn't feel the effects. The only effect you would feel is the dizziness, the inability to like see straight, you know, how Mm -hmm. some people get that when they're drinking. And it would be uncomfortable. It would make your stomach hurt. It would make you feel like you can't breathe sometimes. I'm glad I've never tried that. (laughs) Like I've been sober since February 22nd of this year. And if it weren't for Clean Slate and what they do, um, I definitely wouldn't be here. And now that I have been through Clean Slate, Ramey trusts me again, because obviously we still have some trust issues. He does with me. He's better now, and he and I are trying to start a family. So because of my recovery, that's where I'm at right now. That's awesome. And we actually have Clean Slate here in Ohio, actually in Columbus. And that's awesome that they're also in Indiana and that you touched on Vivitrol too. That's one of the medications that we do at the clinic I work for. We treat mainly opiate use disorder, but Vivitrol is one that treats opiate use disorder and alcohol use disorder. So no, that's awesome. And I also will say, I never want to negate or lessen somebody's recovery with whatever their vice is, whether it's porn, whether it's sex, whether it's, um, methamphetamine, um, whether it's, it's pain pills, you know, whatever it is, but I will say that recovering from alcohol is one of the hardest, if not the hardest addiction to recover from. And it's also the most dangerous to recover from too. So the fact that you're able to be on this other side right now, just like claps to you because it's so hard. And unless if you work in this field, you know, somebody who's gone through it or you've gone through it yourself, you truly just do not know how hard it can be. So the fact that you're here right now in your sobriety, it's just incredible, incredible because it is so hard. Yeah. When I started at that clinic, um, when she agreed to let me try Vivitrol to see if it would help me, she said, the day you get your shot, have a few beers. The next day, have one beer. The next day, have nothing. Because she said, if I went cold turkey, because I had been so dependent for so long and I was drinking vodka like it was water, if I would have just stopped and not tried to wean myself a little bit off while that settled in my body, 
she said I could have gone into extreme withdrawals mm-hmm. and that was so scary it was so scary I did not want to feel like that and yeah I think today it's crazy to be where I am and I appreciate you saying that because it is the hardest thing knowing that it's legal mm-hmm. if you're 21 you can go into a grocery store you can go into a gas station it's everywhere everywhere it's so to this day even it's hard I still have you know addicts have thoughts about it addicts have like that longing for the camaraderie of drinking they want to be like everyone else and oh you're at a barbecue and there's Coors Light in the cooler I want one bad you know and I've gotten better over time with that but it is hard it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my whole life and the fact that it's so normalized too, just like what you said, that it's everywhere. It, it's more normalized than things like fentanyl, for example. Fentanyl's huge right now. Um, where you know, you you don't go to the grocery store and, and see fentanyl on the shelves. You don't go to a barbecue. Well, maybe some barbecues. And then, you know, people are using fentanyl and, and you know, chowing down on a burger or a hot dog. So again, alcohol is without a doubt the hardest to recover from. So it's amazing again. Yeah. That you're, that you're here today and, and on the other side during, during your recovery, what has your faith looked like? How has God helped you in your recovery? God has been everything. Again, I've circled back to when I was a kid to now I'm very lucky. My husband's dad, his name is Bob. He is a pastor at a church in Monticello. One of the churches that I kind of grew up in, um, my dad used to play poker with his, it was like a um, fundraising event that they would do once a month. My dad would go put 25 bucks in and play poker for like five hours at the church. And my my father-in-law is the, the pastor now at that same church. So it's been something that has got me through I remember when I was home alone and it was my first day being sober, you know, after those first couple beers or whatever, I was my first day being sober and I was scared for my life. I was alone. My husband had to work. Um, my sister was working. You know, I was, I was in my house alone. I turned on some Lauren Daigle on my Alexa in my, in my kitchen, her song called rescue came on and oh my gosh, I'm about to cry again. But when I listened to that, that is where I knew that God would play a huge part in what I was going through because that song says it perfectly. Like, I will rescue you. I will, you're not hidden. It's okay to be broken. It's okay to have your innocence stolen. And it's just something that, really 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 hit hard and I still listen to it probably like once or twice a week because I like other Christian music too now um the more into that whenever I listen to it I shed a couple tears because I thank God for showing me that song that day it was something that I never thought a song would propel me into the recovery and being able to handle it I really like that song too And when you were talking about it, it reminded me, um, for my job, I, 
twice a month, I go to a um, drop-in center for women who they're either doing survival sex work, they're homeless, they, they have addiction, they're being trafficked, you know, all of the above. And there's a girl there, she's a regular and she is using and does have a, a rough lifestyle. And uh, oftentimes when I'm there, I'm helping with the clothes and then the showers that they provide in the back just to make connections with the people who are there. And one time um, she was in the shower and she turned on the rescue song by Lauren, Lauren Daigle and was singing it just in the shower. And um, it made me think, you know, I don't know if this person knows God. I don't know what their faith looks like, but the fact that they're listening to that shows me that their, their heart is at least opened. And it gave me a lot of hope to hear that she was listening to that and singing it in the shower. It was a really beautiful moment. So it just goes to show, yeah, music can touch people in so many different ways. Yeah. That's a great song. Lauren Dickel's great. So yeah, especially with music being huge in my background, in my childhood and in high school, I turned to music for a lot of things, um, for comfort, for shelter, for confidence, to feel like I'm not alone. And her, that song just, I don't know how to explain it, but if you've never heard it, you need to hear it because it talks about no matter what demons you're fighting, no matter where you are in your life, no matter what you feel or think, or even if you don't have a heart with God, if you have a closed heart, it's okay. God will rescue you. I know. And a lot of people don't realize that it's a Christian song either, which is, which is even, uh, it, it's just, it's kind of funny, but it is like, it's a Christian song, but I think that's why so many people can also relate to it. There might be people who are listening to this and maybe, maybe you're using alcohol to cope with your bad day. Maybe you're kind of wondering, do I have a problem? Or, or maybe you're thinking about going into recovery yourself and you've identified that it has a negative impact on your life. Um, Megan, what would be your words of advice for those individuals who might want to enter their own recovery, whether it be alcohol or whether it be any other thing that's taking over their life? One thing that held me back from recovery was being scared. I was scared of the person that I would be if I wasn't so far into my addiction. I was scared that I would be somebody new that nobody would like. I was scared that I would be the one person at the party that was sober and everybody would think I'm boring. I was scared that just wouldn't be who I thought I was. My advice would be do not be scared because the people that love you and care about you, they loved you before the addiction. They loved you before, during, after, no matter what you've done, they love you who for who you were before you fell. And all they want to do is pick you back up, trusting yourself and trusting others and just not being scared of anything because addiction makes you fearless 
It makes you feel like you are not scared of or that. Nothing can scare you at all. When you think about recovery, that's what scares you. Just don't be scared. That's the best advice I could give anyone. I think that 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 is excellent advice. And whenever I'm talking, you know, to pregnant women about entering recovery, that's what they share, that that they're scared or they're scared to go to the hospital, even to deliver their own baby, because they're scared of the way that others will treat them. And just that fear is like that underlying, like common denominator of what's holding them back from, from choosing recovery. So I think that that is absolutely excellent advice. And I also want to take time to, to really applaud your husband because he's, he's stuck by your side through all of that and clearly just has so much love for you that I, I have just so much respect for him as a husband and as an individual, because I think that that's incredible. And I think it also goes to show, you know, to show people that sometimes in marriage, you go through really, really dark things. And if you have God on your side, you can get through it. You know, you can get through it and you can restore your marriage. And I think that that'll also touch a lot of people who listen to this podcast too. But I do want to take time today to talk about, about your business. So we'll dive into talking about, you know, where you're at today. So, um, so tell us kind of the story of Ellie's Candle Co. A couple months after I started my recovery, my husband and I talked about finding a hobby for me because one of the main triggers for me to drink was being alone and being bored. So he was like, let's try to find something for you. And I was like, I have no idea what I would want to do. There's nothing that I can think of that would be a good hobby for me because I was just so close-minded to it. He had the idea of me to pick up the hobby of candle making. He said that, I because I love candles, love them. Like I could spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on them at one time just because I love them so much. So he was like, why don't you buy stuff to make your own and see how that turns out? So yeah, actually, I would love to do that. Sounds like it could be challenging, but easy at the same time. So why not? I get on Amazon. I buy this little kit. Has the wax in it. Has whatever the wicks. Everything you can need in it. Dye, scents, whatever. So I started with that. And the fact that I had something that I could uh, concentrate on and reap the reward of it was something that I just, I fell in love with. I started making them a lot with four of my friends and family. I would make it and then send it out to them and have them test it or just as gifts, just being like, hey, I made this, here you go. And that was rewarding too, because when they would tell me, oh, this is great, like you did a great job. That was like a, you know, sentiment to me. So then I, lo- I, I ran out of all my wax because I wanted to, I wanted to keep going. So I bought more wax and a couple more scents to try. And those turned out better than the first time. And then every time I made them again, they would turn out better and better and better. As I started getting better, my friends and my family were like, you need to start selling these because I buy them. And I was like, you would, you would buy this. They're like, yeah, I would buy these. Absolutely. So finally, um, the middle of July, 
yeah, I think it was about the middle of July, I decided to start actually selling them. And all I did was message people on Facebook. I put a post on my personal Facebook page and said, okay, if anybody wants some candles, I'll sell them to you for five bucks. <laughs> so I looked at Dollar Tree, started buying jars and all that stuff. And my, fam my family and friends did start buying them from me. I kept just getting better and they were like, okay, now you got to sell it to other people. You got to do something because you need to reap the reward from this. So I put on Facebook, I opened my Facebook page for Ellie's Candle Co. Since then, it's just been blowing up and I've been to a festival already selling them. I've been on this podcast, which is so awesome and crazy. I love it so much. I have been put into a salon in the retail center of it. So I've already sold quite a bit there. And I'm just so blessed and successful and being successful. And do you currently um, ship your, your products as well? So I can ship my wax melts because I have bubble mailers, but I cannot ship candles yet. I am starting to look and dive into shipping companies where I can just ship it out of my house, make my own labels um, for boxes and whatever it may be. And then um, if somebody wants to buy something from me, like my giveaway that I just did when I got 100 followers, I sent out some stuff to Arkansas and to Georgia. And that was super cool to be like, my oh, name awesome. is there, like, woohoo, you know? So that though it costs quite a bit from UPS to ship. So I would probably have to add some money onto the shipping. So mm -hmm. I, I'm not against it, but once I find out a way to do it more efficiently, then yeah, I'll be able to ship. That makes perfect sense. I need to, I need to buy wax melts from you then. Cause obviously <laughs> I'm in Ohio. Um, so I need to, I wanted to ask you that today so I could purchase them, but we're definitely going to link your your page when we post the podcast and then some information about how people can purchase. Cause we do have some people who listen from um, across the United States. So I know that even though I do have a lot of people who listen in Indiana, cause I'm from Indiana. Um, we do have some people from outside States, I think would be interesting in purchasing some stuff from you, but no, I think that that, that is great. And I'm glad that you you've gotten traction too, and you've been able to like to go to the festivals and like get your products in other places. So, so that's incredible. Congratulations to you. Well, thank you. And yes, I'll send you as, as many as you want. <laughs> You'll get yeah. a little discount. <laughs> you don't have to give me a discount, but the, I, I appreciate that. Um, and again, thank you, Megan, for coming on my podcast, for sharing your story, sharing your wisdom. I have so much respect for you as an individual and, and going through your recovery, for your husband, for the, for the awesome people that you have around you. I just think it's incredible. And I just know that your story is going to touch other people who listen to it. Thank you everyone for tuning in into Megan's story. Thanks for being here and celebrating National Recovery Month with us. It really means a lot. 
Again, as previously mentioned, we will be having two episodes this month. So we will still be having an episode on the last Friday of this month at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, which will be September 29th of this month. And I'm also really excited for you to meet our next guest. So our next guest will actually feature somebody who is going to talk about mental health and then faith. We have somebody coming on the podcast who is going to discuss her life, her life living with schizophrenia, and then her life as somebody who follows Jesus Christ. And I'm so excited for you to meet her next week. So make sure to tune on in next week as well. And then please share Megan's story on your social media if if you feel called to, just because so many people are affected by the disease of addiction or most people know somebody who has battled the disease of addiction as well. So if you could go ahead and share this story, I think it could reach at least one person who needs to hear it. And as always, you're welcome to explore your faith here. Jesus always welcomes you home, and so will I. See you next week. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for being here. You can listen to the Through Every Season podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Feel free to follow us on our social media platforms on Facebook and Instagram, and the handles are mentioned in the description of the podcast. Welcome to my family. Thanks for being here.